Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, a show all about horror movies, and in this case, all the horror movies that screened at this year's Cannes Film Festival. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. Usually it's a conversation show between myself and a guest or two, sometimes filmmakers that actually make the horror films that we love. But this time for this bonus episode, it's just going to be me, for better or worse. This bonus episode is going to be sort of a new format for the show, an experiment of sorts. I recently attended the Cannes Film Festival, the epicenter of the movie world, for about a fortnight. And I'm not saying that to sound fancy at all, because I don't think I sweated as much or had a single piece of fruit in the 10 days that I was there. Don't be fooled by the illusion of glamour that circles around Cannes, it does not apply to film journalists. But I did see so many movies there, horror and non-horror, so what I'm gonna do in this episode is round up my thoughts on all the genre and genre-adjacent films that screened this year that I managed to watch. Some of them will be released in the UK later on in the year, or very quickly, and some of them might not come to our screens at all. So I will keep this episode very spoiler-free, and if these films do get a release, uh, we'll be giving them their full spoilerific in-depth episode in due course. A quick reminder, as usual, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Final Goes UK, and like I said, it's a new format, so do let me know your thoughts about it if it works for you. And as usual, I am respectfully asking anyone who listens to the show to leave us a review over an Apple or Spotify podcast. So let's do it. I've got my coffee ready. I've got my serial killer-esque notes that I took in the dark screening rooms as I was watching these films. And I'm ready to send my thoughts about this year's horror films at the Cannes Film Festival into the podcast ether. The first film that I saw at the festival, the first film that screened at the festival really, was the opening night film Final Cut, uh, which is the new film by Michelle Hajanavicius, hope I'm not mispronouncing that, which is actually a remake of the Japanese zombie hit movie One Cut of the Dead. And I, I can't genuinely imagine or fathom a more bizarre pairing between filmmaker and remake, or even in fact making a remake of that film in the French language. And respectfully, usually when horror films or any films are being remade because they're a big hit, but the fact that they're in a they're in a different language from English limits their audience in one way or another, you know, to paraphrase the great Bong Joon-ho, once you get over the one-inch barrier of subtitles, a whole new world of cinema opens up to you. But that is still a struggle for a lot of people, um, some for good reasons, some for um, bullshit reasons. So I understand why remakes are being made of wildly successful international films, but making a remake of one international film into another international language doesn't quite compute. But I digress. The last time I went there in 2019, Jim Jarmusch's film The Dead Don't Die opened the festival, and that was a riot. And for anyone who's not seen One Kind of the Dead, it's it's an incredibly inventive kind of one-shot zombie movie about the making of a zombie movie. And has an of issues who isn't necessarily a filmmaker that... I would get excited about. For anyone who's not familiar with his name, he's the guy who made the 2011 film The Artist, which we were all in love with in 2011, and which won the Oscar for Best Film, and it won the, the Oscar for Best Actor as well, for Jean Dujardin, and then nothing. It kind of is a fascinating case of a film who had wild amounts of success, and then zero cultural impact. And only, <laughs> only really parallels Avatar. Don't come at me. Nobody's talking, nobody's talked about the film Avatar since it came out, but we are getting a second one very soon, aren't we? But back to Final Cut. It is essentially a shot for shot remake. It's 
for anyone who's not seen one kind of the dad it essentially follows a sort of middling middle of the road filmmaker who gets commissioned to do a um to shoot a live one take zombie movie for a strange up-and-coming streaming channel so they have several weeks to rehearse everything and then they have to shoot the actual zombie movie, make it all seamless, make it all one shot, and obviously hijinks ensue. And it's a really, really, really clever structure, um, but that's all credit to One Cut of the Dead, not to Final Cut. And to be honest, there isn't really that much interesting going on in the film. It is the same film, but with French actors and in the French language. There is one... Uh, one edition of one joke essentially in the film which is that all of the french actors are performing characters roles with the original japanese characters names which obviously sounds uh, incredibly ridiculous and strange and slightly problematic but that is addressed directly as a joke in the film because it is a decision being forced onto the French filmmakers by the Japanese producers who commissioned the French filmmaker in the film played by Romain Dury to make the one-shot remake of the existing real-life Japanese hit One Cut of the Dead. It, it actually sounds more interesting than it is. This is referenced once in the film and then we're done. It doesn't come up ever again. And the one note joke of French white actors being called by Japanese names continues throughout Final Cut. To be honest, this is a film that will be enjoyable for people who have not seen One Cut of the Dead. But if there are fans of One Cut of the Dead, it, I, I don't see the need for this film to exist or even to be watched. It was a fairly entertaining opening night film it was a good way to kick off can but it is completely there is nothing wrong with final cut but there is also no point to it existing so ultimately fans of one cut of the dead i'd give it a miss but for anyone who perhaps is intimidated by uh, a japanese meta zombie movie then you can rent to them final you can recommend final cut to them which is essentially the same thing but with slightly more recognizable french actors and the only other thing to note is that it is, I don't even understand how, it is longer than One Cut of the Dead. And I know it seems a bit boring, but we are all having a wider conversation about the fact that films are extremely long now. So anything that is 90 minutes or less is like a godsend. But this is somehow longer than the original. And also it really feels much longer. It doesn't really have that kinetic energy. and doesn't propel itself as intensely and as excitingly as One Cut of the Dead. And perhaps that's down to the fact that we've seen this movie already before, so it's kind of like watching it again with just different actors. So it could be that, but ultimately I found it to be kind of a pointless exercise. And from everything I've read for the director, he doesn't necessarily have a strong attachment to it either. It seemed like it was just a a good commission, a good thing to do. But if there's not that excitement from the filmmaking team, it's it's really hard for us to get excited about it too as an audience. But moving on, the next sort of horror-adjacent film, actually I'd full-on call this a horror film, would be Ennis Main, the new film by Mark Jenkin, who directed Bait, which came out a few years ago and was wildly and kind of unexpectedly successful and picked up a BAFTA award for that film too. And this is almost an indescribable film in the sense that it's not really about anything and nothing in nothing really happens in it. But as it goes on, you're more and more drawn into it. It is all set on a remote Cornish island in on it is all set on a remote Cornish island and set in 1973, although to be honest, I did not realize this until um, afterwards when I looked up more details about the film. And it sort of follows this um, wildlife researcher or you know this woman who is 
documenting her observations on the wildlife of the island every day, meticulously, with beautiful handwriting, I should just say. And then it kind of stems from that, and it becomes this strange trip of a movie with plants sort of gaining kind of consciousness and with memories and current events intertwining with a mysterious visitor. It is almost entirely without dialogue. And it's what I would kind of, I mean, it, it's what I would call high weird in the sense that it is extremely experimental, very formally astute, very aesthetic, incredibly tactile. Every single shot feels like it's been drawn almost. Um, it's all entirely shot on 16 millimeter, I believe. It's all entirely shot on film and it has this incredibly gorgeous saturation of colors. The greens are just popping. The blues of the sea are all consuming. The the trench coats that the character wears are either red or or yellow at one point are just bursting off the screen. It's incredibly all-engrossing when you watch it. So it becomes this, as much as it is experimental, which might put off some audiences, it becomes this full-body journey. And it was really divisive at the festival too. People that I spoke to, kind of horror people and non-horror people, seem to either land on a, it is not for me, I hated every second of it, could not feel it, could not feel my way through it, and other people who were just like me, kind of transported. I could not, like I mentioned for the life of you, tell you what the film was about, but it made sense within the world of the film. And that's one of the things that I really love and I'm always drawn into with folk horror films, the best ones for me are not the ones that try to explain or overanalyze uh, the folkiness or the or the horrific elements of the the folk or the the earthiness that they're trying to to experiment with and to draw terror from. They're the ones who kind of really capture the feel and the eeriness and the isolation of a landscape, in this case, an island. And, and Mark Jenkins is a Cornish filmmaker and kind of very proud, like he mentioned at the, at his introduction of the, of the screening, very proud kind of of this, of this area and kind of really knowledgeable about it. And you can tell it through his film through his films too. You can feel a sense of place so intensely. And if you're not from there, I've never even been to Cornwall myself. It really draws you in into this almost mystical psychogeography. So I can't wait for this film to be released. The BFI have it in the UK, so it will be getting a release. And I'm I think it will and I think it will really draw a reaction from people. And I say this a lot about films, but I think there is something about this one that really needs to be seen in a big screen. And I'd say it specifically because not just of the imagery that I've waxed lyrical about, but also because of the, of the soundscape, of the soundscape. And also big shout out to the lead actress, Mary Woodwine, who basically wordlessly carries this entire film and everything she does, even the really repetitive, uh, routine that her character has kind of draws you into this almost hypnotic state. And she's so incredibly watchable in the film and everything that happens to her, both the really, really, um, everyday and, and slightly boring to the strangeness that starts to happen to her and the weirdness that starts to occur to her in her body, the melding of her memories and her uh, current reality. She just carries it with such earnest intensity. You can't help but be captivated by her. So I'm, I really encourage when, whenever this film is out later this year, um, the release date hasn't been announced yet, to check it out in the cinema. And I might be booking a holiday to Cornwall because it was so incredibly weird. I'm now really taken with the landscape of that of that area. And then moving on to a film which is also quite, I'd say, genre adjacent. Uh, also screened in the director's Fortnite section, same as Ennis Main, which is a kind of parallel section to the official selection of the Cannes Film Festival. And personally, I always 
prioritize it because I find that the films there are much, much better usually. Uh, less interested in stars and red carpets and much more um, in fascinating filmmaking. So the next film I'm going to talk about is Falcon Lake, which is the debut film by actress turned director Charlotte Le Bon. And it's very much on the adjacent side of genre adjacent because it's not quite a horror film strictly, but it's kind of a spooky coming of age film, which might be a new subgenre that I've come up with today. But it essentially follows two teenagers, Bastien and Chloe, who end up spending their summer vacation together when their families, uh, Bastien's family come to the lake cabin in Quebec, uh, where Chloe's family is also spending time. And they're both teenagers, so f- on different ends of the spectrum of teenagehood. So Chloe is kind of very surly, very in her teenage girl feelings. She's about 15 or 16. She kind of hates everyone. And Bastian is kind of a 13-year-old boy, so he's still very much, you know, not quite the dickhead that teenage boys can become. Kind of really earnest and sweet. And they end up getting close to each other. It's not necessarily, it's not quite romantic, but it's also not romantic. Um, but they form a very specific kind of bond that feels so honest to those kind of summary teenage bonds that you form with people really quickly and feels like an almost universal experience, no matter how specific it can be. But the horror elements of this come from the fact that Chloe is a little bit of a morbid teenage girl. So she always is coming up with white lies or with extravagant stories. She tells everyone about this ghost legend that is haunting the lake where they're, um, where they're spending the summer. And obviously even just the setting, you know, the house by the lake. And it's so almost picture perfect out of a Friday the 13th film, you know, this sort of remote, uh, house and it's all very set up. It's all very beautiful. But then there's this spookiness to it. And at night, the woods and the lake gain this extra element of eeriness to it. And these two teenagers, of course, it's like set up for a horror film. And the entire film, I was kind of waiting for an actual ghost to happen. That's how much I was drawn into the stories that Chloe herself was was, um, weaving in the film. And I think because of the setting, the eeriness is always there. And there is something that happens at the end that I won't reveal because it was such a, such a surprise, uh, to see that happen. But I think for anyone who's more, uh, leaning towards or really favorable towards the more art house horror vibe, um, your I'm not a serial killer or perhaps your super dark times, which, uh, both films that we talked about very recently on the main feed of the podcast, then this one is definitely one to seek out. I'm not sure if this has gotten a UK release. I personally don't think it will. Although if you do stumble upon it or you manage to find it uh, somewhere in a streaming service, I do encourage you to check it out. It's got the perfect summer vibes with just a sprinkling of spookiness that made it for such a beautiful watch. And it is also gorgeously shot. It really taps into the beauty of spaces that we're really used to seeing being transformed into spaces of horror. And that kind of serves as a reminder of why these spaces are so appealing as well and how they've been transformed in, in our imagination by horror movies. And that was Falcon Lake by Charlotte Le Bon. Moving on to another film from the same section in Director's Fortnite is The Five Devils by director and screenwriter Leah Misius. Now, I saw this one a few weeks before I actually went to Cannes, and I had no idea what I was going into. Completely blank, open-hearted. And when I tell you that I was fully, full-bodied, in love with this film, about 30 minutes in, I could not get enough of it. And by the end of it, I was beaming because of just how perfectly structured and compact it is. You know how sometimes when you watch a film that is very tightly scripted, very well-rounded, it has a story that has a beginning and an end. It has a beautiful ending that I won't go into, but you know, this film is going to get a release by Mubi in the UK, so I will definitely be doing a full-on episode about this one. But 
It stars Adele Exatropoulos, oh god, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, as Joanne, a swimming instructor in a small town, and centers on her and her relationship with her daughter Vicky, played by Sally Germain, who is eight years old and has a hyper, almost superhero level like sense of smell. So Vicky loves, is almost obsessed with her mom, and she loves collecting smells and she puts them in glass jars and it's a really intriguing premise because how do you even film smells it's not a cinematic sense at all so all the props to sally germay to kind of give us a sense of this little girl who is kind of ostracized by her peers in her school kind of even feared by her own mother. And she, when I say that she's kind of obsessed with her mother, she tries to even get the sense and the smell of her mother in jars. And she sort of goes uh, wild swimming with Joanne and kind of puts this cream on her body that is meant to help retain heat while she's swimming in really in a really really cold lake and when she's done when her mom is out swimming she's just collecting this this cream that smells like her mom in these jars and then smells them at night and then in order to kind of keep her mother close oh it's the most beautiful image and there is a certain tension between Joran and her husband Jimmy it's kind of a cold marriage and then Things get really interesting when Julia, who is Jimmy's sister and um, Vicky's aunt, comes back into town and Julia is sort of really feared and um, not spoken about very well in the town where they live. And I'm just going to set up the premise here because I really want as many people as possible to watch this film. It's incredible. Uh, Vicky wants to smell Julia. She... And she finds a little bottle of something in Julia's bag that transports her back in time to when Joanne and Julia were younger teenagers uh, in this very town. And that leads her literally into her mother's past. And nobody else uh, can see her there except her own future aunt Julia. So it all gets very weird very complicated, but it is also incredibly subtle. It never goes OTT. It's all entirely centered on this one family, on this one series of relationships that exist between these four characters, between Joanne, between Julia, between Vicky, the time-traveling smell superhero daughter, and her father, Jimmy, who's sort of a not a side character in this whole scenario, but completely a full character in his own right. There's family secrets or sound secrets that are uncovered, and I won't go into this because this is genuinely such a fully satisfying cinematic ride to watch The Five Devils. And I got the chance to interview the director, uh, Lea Macius, while I was in Cannes. Um, I'll play a little clip of that interview here, and I might re- and I will probably release the full thing later on when the film comes out. It is slightly dodgy audio because as glamorous as it sounds, recording in the sweltering can sun with the sea breeze and and at a terrace at a villa does not make for necessarily super high quality audio. So do forgive me for that, but it is the situation where I had to record. So let's hear a little bit from the Five Devils writer and director, Liam Misius. What is the genesis of it? What was there an image or a scene or a character that came to you first? Je pense que l'image qui m'est venue en premier, c'est vraiment l'image d'une jeune femme qui hurle devant le feu. Et l'image qui m'est venue en second, c'est celle d'une petite fille étrange, burlesque et à la fois drôle et inquiétante, qui a des peaux avec des odeurs dedans et dont l'un avec l'odeur de sa mère. Et en fait, c'est l'association de ces deux images qui a créé l'histoire que j'ai écrite ensuite. The image that I had, first of all, was of a young woman yelling in front of a fire. And the second image is of a little girl that is a bit strange and upsetting in the way she looks. And she has this very unusual 
hobby or practice to collect smells, amongst which the smell of a mother in a little jar. And I wanted to ask you about the fire. What is the significance of a fire, and especially um, considering it was the first image that came to you with the film? Alors quand je l'ai écrit, je savais pas d'où ça venait spécialement, mais c'est vrai qu'après, en, en continuant à, à réfléchir dessus, en écrivant et en lisant, je suis, j'ai relu des, un livre de Pascal Quignard qui s'appelle La nuit sexuelle et que je connaissais déjà et j'avais déjà entendu parler de, 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 de sa théorie. C'est qu'il y aurait une scène primitive ou une scène euh, invisible euh, qui serait euh, en fait que tous les enfants imagine qu'avant leur naissance il y a eu une scène de, de chaos de feu, de massacre et ce qui serait en fait la scène de leur conception et que tous les enfants dans leur espèce de quête de, de existentielle se demandent euh, et, et demandent à leurs parents enfin, en tout cas ils ne le demandent pas vraiment mais ils imaginent le demander euh, est-ce est que vous m'aimiez avant que j'existe I didn't know where it came from uh, when I was writing, but then I realized, rereading a novel that I had read before, a novel by Pascal Guignard, whose title is The Sexual Night, and it refers to the so-called primitive, primal scene, which is invisible to all of us, and it's a scene that each child sees that precedes the birth. It's a scene of total chaos, massacre, and fire, And it's the scene when they were conceived. So they're unable to see it, but they experience it in a way. And the other issues dealing with, with fire is that we will all ask our parents, we have all asked our parents, did you love me before I was there, before I was born? To summarize, I think The Five Devils might be one of my favorite films that I saw in the entire Cannes Film Festival. It is truly, it truly feels magical. And it is that perfect balance of a love story and a time travel story that really mixes the heart of art house dramas and French dramas in particular with genre aspirations and genre conventions and melds them perfectly. And Adele in particular as the central character is just so charismatic in such an effortless way. It, it's almost unbelievable. I hadn't really seen her in much since Blue is the Warmest Color came out and kind of then was, um, you know, re, positioned as something that was perhaps a problematic experience for its two lead actresses but and I haven't rewatched the film since but obviously that catapulted her into a sort of art house stardom um but seeing her again on seeing her again on the big screen in this film really reminded me of that star power that some actors have that Adele definitely has so I will 100% be devoting more time to this film in due course. But if anybody gets the chance to see this, I just want to plant the five devils in your brain now and remember to check it out when it is out in the UK. Moving on now to Holy Spider. Oof. This is not a lovely film. It's the new work by director Ali Abassi, who is the director of the romantic body horror film Border, which came out a few years ago. Uh, although he did actually start writing Holy Spider before he made Border, but the success of that film has enabled this film to happen. And this screened in the official competition at the Campo Festival, which meant that it was in competition for the Palme d'Or, which is the highest uh, award given out at Cannes, and it is a nasty film, which is not a word that, use, that I'd use very often, because not even extreme or gory films are necessarily nasty, but this one left me feeling very weird and very, very off. It's essentially a crime thriller. It's based on the true story of uh, an Iranian serial killer called Saeed Hanai, who targeted sex workers and killed 16 women between the year 2000 and 2001 in Mashhad in Iran. And 
Ali Abassi was uh, in university, I think, when this case was happening. And he's been kind of writing the story of this for a number of years. And this is fictionalized, and but also very much rooted in research and in a really, really, uh, a really intense case. So I didn't even... It is essentially on, when you go into it, perfectly pitch serial killer crime drama. And as many of these films do, it merges the investigations of a journalist, in this case, a female journalist played by Zaramir Abrahimi, uh, who is trying to uncover who this serial killer is, uh, who has been incredibly active, has a very clear pattern of, of behavior of killings and still evades capture by the uh, Iranian police and it's important to know that she's a female journalist and on the other hand it goes really really up close to the serial killer himself who was nicknamed the spider by the by the press at the time this is where the the name of the film comes from so we're getting these two parallel stories and how they collide eventually. And, you know, this is not a spoiler. It is, after all, a, a, a true crime case. But the fictionalizing part of Holy Spider comes in the figure of the journalist, of Rahimi. And it is incredibly important to know that she's a female journalist because, and, you know, Ali Abassi has spoken about this very openly, it's a film not just about a serial killer, but it's a film also about the enabling of the serial killer by a misogynistic uh, society. So Rahimi, as a woman, as a single woman who is investigating this case of a man who is killing women and sex workers in particular, completely openly and proudly motivated by a very intense and really extreme form of misogyny her investigation of his work of his killings is also constantly hindered by other men and i don't think this is a a spoiler because i think you know this comes about halfway through in the film and it's it's very interesting it's the thing that makes the film most interesting and most affecting for me it's the fact that when the when the killer gets caught he's lauded as a hero. So he's given a ton of press attention. He's given a ton of space to spew his misogynistic bullshit. And the case isn't over. But that is the thing that kind of sets it apart. Because filmically, it's beautifully shot. The sound design and the music in particular is astounding and it really gives you a sense of place and the place Mashhad is incredibly important for as the setting of the film is not where it was filmed um because Ali Bassi couldn't get permission to film in Iran but it is it is really important you know the streets the houses the you can almost smell the streets and and the characters in the film because of just this intense up close and very uh beautiful way really horrible things are filmed. It does follow and it does feel very Fincher-esque. Uh, they're, the structure of it, uh, some of the shots in it, they they would happily belong in a David Fincher movie, you know, in the best serial killer movies that Fincher has done, like Zodiac and Seven. This feels very much of that ilk. But then it's this moment when the movie doesn't end when the killer is caught. And the fact that actually nobody's really against the killer is the thing that really upended my own expectations of the film of what that type of film of what that type of serial killer crime thriller is due to deliver to us the audience and that's what made it feel extremely nasty in a way because there is so much violence against women in this film it is so up close so detailed in such a grotesque way. I am not at all saying that this film is misogynistic at all, but it is really tackling a type of misogyny that is so ingrained and so under the skin 
that it bleeds out in everything. And it bleeds out in the, in this serial killer's, um, murders. And it, it feels incredibly aggressive to watch. And I think that's an, an amazing accomplishment by Ali Abassi. It does not make it an easy film. And I watch a lot of horror films. I watch a lot of what people consider fairly extreme horror films. I'm not easily startled, but there is some elemental ugly truth about the nature of misogyny that this film captures that I almost cannot put into words. And I remember when I came out of this film and you have these conversations about, you know, did you like it? What did you think? And I actually couldn't talk about it for a little bit because it, I didn't know if I liked it or not. I had felt every shot of it and what it was trying to do so intensely. And at the same time, as a fan of true crime and horror filmmaking and crime films, had enjoyed the actual film aspect of it so much that I felt incredibly conflicted about what my opinion was. It's a wildly accomplished film, and at the same time, I felt it's an incredibly aggressive film in its own way. And I really have to talk a little bit about Zaramir Brahimi, who plays Rahimi, the, the journalist who's investigating the case of the spider killer. Um, she actually won the Best Actress Award at the festival, and I think her role needs a little bit of context, which makes it even more incredible, makes her work in the film even more incredible. So she, you know, and, and Ali Abassi in the press notes for the film kind of says that she has been his ally on this movie from the beginning. And and I quote him here, if there's one person who has authorship of it besides me and the producers, it's her. She was a, a huge star in the early 2000s in Iran. And then there was a, there was a sex tape scandal. It was a sex tape that was leaked that people said was featured her and a man. And she was so hounded by the, by the controversy and the reaction to that, that she had to leave Iran and she's living in Paris now. And she actually started as a casting director on Holy Spider, but because of the last second thing, they had to recast the role of Rahimi and they cast her. So this intention and I think success in exploring misogyny on a wider scale than just one single man, one single serial killer really is channeled very intensely in the experiences and the journey of Rahimi in this film. And I didn't know this about Zaramir Brahimi until after I had watched the film and reading about it and reading about her own experiences since she'd been hounded away from her career, from her artistic career, um, because of, of a sex tape leaking gave it this, gave her performance in retrospect, this additional layer of just anger at a structure that was never willing to let her succeed, no matter how successful she was uh, for a while. So then I'm really, I am not looking forward to rewatching this film, but I am because I want to watch it again with the additional context. And don't get me wrong, I am not looking forward to rewatching this film, but I am at the same time because I want to see it again with the additional context um, of reading a bit more about uh, the spider killer and uh, about Zaramir Brahimi as well. And this film has been picked up. It's going to be released by Mubi in the UK. So I am sure we're going to get to it uh, a little bit later. So the next film that screened at Cannes was the... Folk Horror Men by writer-director Alex Garland, he who made Ex Machina and who made Annihilation. However, I did not see this film in Cannes, did not get a ticket, but also this film is coming out on Friday in the UK, so I will be talking about it this week. So there will be another bonus episode on our Patreon that goes deep into men, and I 
we'll be discussing that with Mary Wilde on a whole nother episode. So I'm only going to mention it here because it did screen at Cannes and I had been dying to see it, but also it is coming out extremely soon. So we'll be giving it its due space because I have seen it now and it definitely merits conversation. We'll be giving it its due space in a whole full spoilerific bonus episode this week. And I wanted to end this bonus episode dispatch from the Cannes Film Festival with what else but David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. One of my most anticipated films of the festival, not gonna lie, my boy David Cronenberg has rarely, if ever, disappointed me. And and of course, this is his first film in eight years. He hasn't made a film since the 2014 Maps to the Stars and hasn't made a horror film since 1999's Existence. So Crimes of the Future, big deal for us Cronenberg, which is how I call Cronenberg fans. So this screened same as Holy Spider in the official competition at this year's Cannes Film Festival. And again, the expectations are sky high, which is a blessing and a curse because it means a lot of people are excited to see your film, but also the combined expectation of the return of Cronenberg to the big screen. So return of Cronenberg to Cannes, where he screened Cannes as well, to uh, where he screened Crash way back in the 90s, to much controversy as well. And the return of Cronenberg to body horror and also the return of a Cronenberg body horror after Titan won the last Palm Door. Uh, for anyone who hasn't heard of Titan, it has been compared to Cronenberg and to Cronenberg's crash in particular quite often, even by the star of Crimes of the Future, Viggo Mortensen, who weirdly went off on Titan, but that's neither here nor there. But, but anyway. Crimes of the Future is a sci-fi body horror that's set at some point in the future where human bodies have adapted to a new environment and are actively mutating and creating uh, new organs. And the film follows a celebrity performance artist, uh, Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, who, together with his partner, former surgeon Caprice, played by Leah Seydoux, create these performance pieces where they transform and surgically remove the new organs that Soul's body produces. And other things are involved. It's a uh, it's difficult to explain without getting into too many spoilers, but the film also stars Kristen Stewart and Scott Speedman. There is a secret parallel underground society that is actually advocating for the physical evolution of human beings and for humans to just embrace it and go with it instead of trying to surgically alter themselves. There is another underground movement of performance artists who will uh, adapt or mutate their bodies in order to create art out of it. There is a dance sequence, which I was very happy about, um, with a man with about 50 different ears on different parts of his body. Very beautiful, very eerie, absolutely my jam. And then, of course, there's all the sex. Now, I'll preface this by saying that I have a thing about Cronenberg cinema, wherein I think it comes in three very distinct flavors that sometimes intersect. On the one hand, you've got the full body horror Cronenberg. This is your rabbit, this is your shivers, this is your scanners, this is the brood, uh, existence, you know, this is full genre David Cronenberg, um, you know, the granddaddy of body horror. And then on the other hand, you've got the horny Cronenberg. You know, these films that are exploring sensuality and sex and desire, um, all the different and sometimes perverse even, uh, colors of that. And, you know, that's Crash, obviously, one of his greatest films, in my opinion, is from 1996. That's also, to a degree, Existence. That's also, um, 
that's also a dangerous method. So that's also um butterfly. So and then the other and then the other third flavor to Cronenberg is the sort of work that he's been doing in the latter part of his career, which is more the purely art house Cronenberg. So he's doing serious, um, kind of non-genre specific films. You know, he's playing around with dramas. He's playing around with period pieces. He's playing around with, um, real stories or kind of adaptations or biopics, even in the case of a dangerous method. He's exploring the mind. He's exploring violence. Uh, you know, things like A History of Violence, films like Spider or Eastern Promises, Cosmopolis, A Dangerous Method, or even Maps of the Stars, which was his last film. So those three distinct aspects to his career, you know, the body horror stuff, the horny stuff, and the art house dramas all combine in Crimes of the Future, in my opinion all the body transformation stuff, the mutations, the surgical approach to the body is so interesting, but it is directed in a very cold, art housey way. There is no fleshiness to it. There is no horror to it. I would hesitate to call this film a body horror in the sense, although it does deal with the body, literally, and there is quite a lot of scenes of surgery. There's quite a lot of, you know, up close images of body organs, both inside and outside of the body. There is an autopsy, which I think is, a, I'm not going to, there's an autopsy of a child, which is, uh, I think is the thing that really pushed some people over the edge. So there is graphic imagery of the body, but it is always presented in a very respectful and very cold way. It is not bodies that are um, violent or having violence committed against them, they're always either in situations of sex or in just resting or in situations of pain. You know, when there are characters who are going through painful procedures, but they're not violent procedures. Um, so that's what makes it really curious. And then there's all the horniness to it. You know, there's a lot of conversation around sex in the film. Uh, there is one particularly interesting sex scene in a, there is one interesting sex scene, but other than that, again, it is just a lot of talk. There is a massively horny vibe to the entire film though. And everything that a lot of the characters are, are saying kind of drips with the possibility of what's going to happen to the idea and the practice of sex if human bodies are transforming. If human bodies are mutating, what does that mean for good old-fashioned fucking? And that, as kind of basic as it sounds, is one of the ideas that underpins the whole of Crimes of the Future. And, you know, one of the, the key marketing elements of the film, the trailer and how it's being released is this breathless delivery by Kristen Stewart in the film of Surgery is the New Sex. And she is extremely funny in this film. Um, she seemingly is just teetering on the verge of orgasm throughout her per whole performance in the film, which makes it for, uh, makes for some scenes to be incredibly hilarious. But I digress. That is a key theme of the film. And I think it's actually something that feels incredibly realistic as well. Um, we're most, a lot of humans are, and a lot of industries are motivated by sex or by the promise of sex. So of course, if David Cronenberg of all people is exploring or presenting this futuristic, almost dystopian world where human bodies are actively and very rapidly mutating in some, into something else, then Throughout his film and his choice of characters, namely the, the two performance artists, Caprice and Soul, these are characters who are thinking a lot about what it means for their bodies to be changing. And then the character, Scott Speedman's character in this film is conversely thinking about what it means in a political and social sense for human bodies to be mutating and transforming. So it's a very intellectually minded film that deals with the fleshy and the bodily and the sexual without actually 
showing us any horror or any sex, really. So whenever this gets released, as of today, I haven't seen any anyone having picked it up for the UK. It has been released in the US, I believe, this week or next week. So it's getting really, really quick turnaround release in the States. But whenever it does come out, whatever format it comes out, we will be devoting a full episode to this film because it is so rich with ideas. And I did read that as with anything related to genre, and especially as with anything related to David Cronenberg, there was a lot of hype and a lot of pushback against it. People complained that it was not horror enough, or that it was not horny enough, or that it wasn't um, very good at all. I disagree. I think holding it up to those hype standards is just setting it up to fail. Um, it is very slow-moving film, so I think for anyone who's kind of looking for a... Um, thrilling scanners type or the brute type film is going to be slightly disappointed. It's more like a combination of existence and crash. And actually it uses very similar looking um, objects as the very fleshy sci-fi um, almost game controller style technology that's used in existence. So it has that look and feel. I really enjoyed it and I found it to be such a rich, rich text that I, I can't wait to see it again whenever I'm able to see it again. And also hilarious in its own very weird way. And of course, of course I would not be disappointed by David Cronenberg. He's never disappointed me. So I think that is it for my very coffee-fueled can dispatch for this bonus episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Do let me know if you do, because I might do these again sometime, or just as a way to recap through a lot of the films that I'm watching that simply sometimes there is just no time to give an individual bonus episode to. With all that said, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you get to check out some of these films on the big screen or on streaming whenever they come to the UK. and. Thank you for listening. <laughs>